1: There's kind of two ways I feel like you can sort of attack a setup. One is you can make fun of something that is already within the setup, and that's kind of more of an internal version of a punchline. And then there's something where you can take that idea and bring it to an, a separate place that is a surprise location.
2: <laughs> that sounds like I'm kidnapping <laughs> the setup.
0: <laughs> Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas.
2: And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn. And whose voice did we hear at the top of the show? That was the delightful Karen Chi. She, another Karen, to be clear. (laughs) Um, She is a comedian who's done everything from stand-up to writing for The New Yorker and The Golden Globes. And she's
0: currently a staff writer for Late Night with Seth Meyers. So in the interview, Karen mentions being in a different age bracket from most of her co-workers at Late Night. How old is she? If I'm not mistaken, she's currently
2: 26, so she is very young, especially since she started a couple years ago or something, I believe.
0: Wow. That's a very early start in late night comedy writing. She's a prodigy. She's great. Yeah. Well, I am very excited to hear the interview. But first, I know that you have an extra segment for Slate Plus members. Mm -hmm. What will they hear?
2: We talk a little bit about one of the quirks of working at Late Night with Seth Meyers, which is that the writers actually go home before the show tapes. (laughs) Obviously, we get into what it's like working on a late night show on the full episode, but if you're interested in getting a better peek behind the late night curtain, I
0: highly recommend the segment. Well, it sounds fascinating, and fortunately, it's incredibly easy to subscribe to Slate Plus. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our... Sorry. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like the Culture Gab Fest and the Waves. It's just $1 for the first month. For more information, go to slate.com slash workingplus. All right, let's hear Karen's conversation with Karen Chi. rules and restrictions may apply. Karen Chi, thank
2: you so much for coming on Working. It is a delight to be able to talk to you today. Yay, it's so nice to talk to you too, Karen Han. So I'm going to get straight into it. If I'm remembering correctly, comedy was not your first passion. So I'm curious if you can tell us what you initially thought you wanted to do with your life and how and when comedy became the thing for you.
1: I guess my first passion was school, <laughs> um, but it's true. I, like, was very – I really loved school. I loved my teachers, and I mm-hmm. remember being like, oh, I fully understand. Like, the the job of being a student made so much sense to me. Like, I was yeah. really excited to learn. I was really excited to do my homework, um, and I think that went all the way up through – maybe the beginning of high school and then once I got to high school I was like less enamored by my school and the teachers and that is also coincidentally when I started thinking of like oh maybe I want to be a comedy writer. Yeah. <laughs> so I think when I became a little older I realized oh, I really like writing and I really like history and politics and stuff um, and so I was thinking about maybe like speech writing or something in politics mm-hmm. and then yeah floated to comedy writing. And then when I got to college, that really got cemented.
2: Yeah. So you definitely knew that you wanted to do something kind of more forward facing, I guess.
1: Yes. Although I think I wanted to do something forward facing on behalf of another person. Um, Oh, yeah. So like I never wanted to be the politician, if that makes sense. I wanted to be like someone who wrote for the politician or did something for them that was helpful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And so what were your kind of like first steps into comedy? Because I feel like we all have very broad ideas of what quote unquote comedians do, but the actual work part of it, I think is pretty mysterious to most people.
1: I started off, essentially, when I was in eighth grade, my friend Morgan showed me The Office. And I like, oh, yeah. hadn't seen comedy before because my parents didn't let me watch TV like on the weekdays. I have uh-huh. like very strict parents who were like, TV is bad for you. And then explained <laughs> it so well that I genuinely avoided watching television. Wait, what, what was their explanation to you? Their explanation? I mean, I still buy it. And I think it's genius, <laughs> which is they were like, if you watch television, increasingly, all the shows are the edits are getting so quick. Like, Mm -hmm. um... That the scenes are changing so quick and that there's they're just increasing the amount of stimulation when you're watching the show that your attention span is growing shorter. And my mom, who like worked with young children in therapy for a little bit and stuff, like was like, you know, very honestly, when you're a child, your attention span should be like you should be training it to be the longest possible. Mm. Um, because your brain is still developing. And I was immediately just like, Mom, that makes so much sense. I remember I watched an episode of <laughs> Jeopardy and I was like tallying how many edits there were, and there were wow. so many more than I had expected. Yeah. And it was such a good way of explaining to me why TV was bad for a young kid's brain to consume <laughs> all the time. Uh huh. And then so when I was in eighth grade and my friend, uh, like on YouTube, my friend Morgan yeah. was like, hey, like, look at these clips of The Office. And I was just like mind blown because I didn't know that kind of a thing existed. Mm-hmm. And that all those people were getting together to be funny on purpose was really crazy to me. And I think that's when I sort of started getting really interested in comedy. And then in high school... I did, like, improv and stuff, which is so yeah. embarrassing to say now.
2: Everyone <laughs> did you did, ever... It's either improv or acapella, and you did uh, one of them. <laughs> yeah. Wait, which one did you do? I did acapella. <laughs> uh, okay. Cool, 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 cool. Okay.
1: I'm not going to lie. Acapella is still really cool to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think it's, you can say that as someone who didn't do it, but as someone who <laughs> d- was, like, very in it, now I'm like, what was I doing? <laughs> like, why did I take it so seriously? Anyway. Um, kind of on the back of that, I'm curious, like, what do you... If there's, like a single experience that you think that you consider like your first really like professional comedy job
1: I remember when I was so when I was in college I started like contributing to the New Yorker um Mm -hmm. and I that only happened just because I didn't realize you had to be an adult to write for the New Yorker (laughs) um when I was submitting it they were there were there weren't any things about like I think it was something like resume optional or something like that uh-huh. and so I was like whatever and I sent it in and then because of that there was somebody who was putting up a show that was like a reading show the where you read your comedy pieces and there were. Mm-hmm putting together a lineup and I guess they had seen my name on the New Yorker stuff and didn't know I was in college and asked if I wanted to do it and then at that point I was like, Oh my gosh, they don't know I'm a student. I feel like I've somehow tricked the system. (laughs) And I remember on the weekend, I think it's like during maybe my fall semester of my senior year or something like that um taking like a bus to new york and then doing that show and reading my thing and then there were other people in the lineup one of whom is like one of my co-workers now at late night oh wow Um, yeah but that was my first time like sort of brushing shoulders with actual comedy writers yeah and feeling like oh I also have something to contribute to this and they are also assuming that I'm a comedy writer and Mm -hmm. I think I got paid for it It was probably something like ten dollars like I definitely (gasps) paid way more to get there and like stay on my friend's couch yeah you got paid an exposure yeah I got paid. Yeah. But I was really excited just to be like, oh my gosh, I got money for this. So that's amazing. Yeah. That was very, that was very cool. That sticks out in my mind.
2: (laughs) Um, And so as you mentioned, you're currently a late night writer. What was the path that got you to that job?
1: Yeah. So I graduated from college and then sort of floated around for a little bit. And I like lived in Vermont for a month and things like that. And then I, I'm not originally from Vermont. That's why I mentioned it. (laughs) I'm from California. So Vermont was like, a whole new world. It really felt like what I imagined Canada is supposed to be. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so anyway, I did that. And then when I moved to New York, I spent a full year kind of just throwing everything at the wall and seeing Mm -hmm. what stuck. So I that was when I first started doing stand up. um, And a lot of writing for internet humor sites, um, trying to do shows and kind of meeting other people who did comedy. Yeah. Yeah, And I did that for a full year. And that was when I was trying to write packets and stuff for shows. So like, So late night shows in general have like this application process essentially Mm -hmm. where you get sent a packet and what that means is there are things you have to do to submit and send in for the head writer or the people at that show to read and then see if you're good enough um, to be considered. Yeah. And so I did that for a bunch of shows, and I got rejected from a lot of them, which I think is normal. But at the time, I was like, oh, my
2: God, I'm terrible.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I found out after I joined um, that I think this is someone at Colbert who told me she had written like 32 packets before she Mm, got staffed. So uh, compared to that, I was like not nearly there, but it really I was probably going to get pretty close, I assume. And so... I did that. And then I got a job writing for the Golden Globes. And so...
2: Was the Globes job also um, from a packet or...
1: No, that one was really okay. random. That one, I think normally what happens is the Golden Globes host before they fell into flames. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, Rippo-Dippo. Go- yeah,
1: <laughs> Rippo-Dippo. The host used to be like a late night person and then they would just bring their writing staff. Gotcha, yeah. And so that year the host was, it was Andy Samberg and Sandra Oh. And so they, you know, are actors and don't have like a writing staff in place. And so Mm -hmm. they sort of asked around, I think. um, And then... I was so excited by the idea of getting to write for Sandra O. Oh yeah. But I had mentioned it, and one of my, someone I knew from the internet who had read my stuff, but I'd never met her in person. Wow. Was like, actually, I, I know Andy, and I'm going to pass your stuff along. And she did, and it was so nice. And they were like, yeah, well, we would love to reach out and hire That's you great. for this. That's great. Yeah. And so that was my first, like, staffing job. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And then when I was there, I met a bunch of the late night writers. So, it was all the women writers, I think, had gone out to write for Late Night together. And they were also really, like, everybody in that room was nice. But the three yeah. of them went out of their way to be really nice and welcoming. because oh, I think yeah. Yeah, they could tell I was really scared. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I did that. And then when I came back to New York, I mentioned to them, like, oh, I might get staffed at this other show. Like, I mm-hmm. had a packet go well, and I'm excited about it. And they were, like, really nice and had me come in. They kind of mentioned me, I think, to Late Night. And was like, before she gets staffed there, let's see if she's a fit here. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, yeah, I went in and I met with them and I really liked them. So
2: mm-hmm. the way that these shows are structured is like there is a writer's room that works together to put the show together. Can you talk a little bit about how the writer's room works for a show like Late Night?
1: So pre-pandemic, we were, when I think one of the perks of this job compared to other late night rooms is that we're all in the same room. Mm hmm. So in the beginning, it always sounds a little bit weird because we don't have our own offices is essentially what it means. We're all in this giant L-shaped room. But (laughs) because of that, and thankfully because everyone is very nice, um, Mm -hmm. it ends up just becoming like a summer camp.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So we hang out all day long. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically, the writing staff is split into two. There's a monologue writing team and a sketch writing team. And you can do both. So periodically, I'll write sketches and stuff. And you can... Submit whenever, but there's one that you focus on. Mm-hmm. And so I'm on the monologue team. So we just essentially crank out a ton of jokes every morning. Um, Pre pandemic, it was something like three full pages of jokes by one p.m. Wow. every day. I think. Yeah, and in the beginning, that was by something yourself where I was, like, or as a by yourself. group. <gasps> wow. Yeah, so each person, yeah. So it was something like everyone. I can't remember the actual number, but maybe in each given day, everyone writes like eighty. Jokes, and then if you're lucky, like two will make it on the show. Right, (laughs) right. um, That was really good training in terms of getting a lot of stuff out of my brain and not judging myself because oftentimes I'll have to write like 10 to get to one good one. And there'll be days where I write, you know, all 80 jokes and not get any on the show. And Mm -hmm. it's really nice just to be like, okay, well, I can just do it tomorrow. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, so we do that in the morning. The writer's assistants sort of comb through the news and pull out headlines for us. And that's how we get a lot of the material. And then usually based on their sort of shortened encapsulation of the news, you you can go and research more. Mm-hmm. And there are also two TVs in the room that are usually on mute but are on some sort of news channel so that if something big is happening, you can all watch it together. Yeah. And that's actually kind of really fun. It does feel like mm-hmm. you and your friends are watching some show together and, you know, making fun of whatever is happening. <laughs> <laughs> um so you go in for a uh, reads-through with Seth. So he goes and speed-reads through a bunch of jokes that the head writer picked out from mm-hmm. your, you know, 80. And he speed-reads through them because if it's, like, monotone and really fast and it still feels funny, then you're like, oh, this is actually a good joke uh-huh, yeah. and not just the delivery. Um, right. And so we do that, and then we go back and we write more, and then we do the dress rehearsal, and that's with an audience that – some pages i think have truly picked up
2: outside of 30 rock (laughs)
1: um and it's tough because a lot of those people are often tourists from other countries and so they'll yeah (laughs) yeah, their knowledge of american politics is often very slim or they'll laugh at something random like a weird (laughs) pronunciation or something like that
2: um they're just happy to be seeing seth meyers (laughs) Yeah, I think so. And I also wonder,
1: do they know who he is? <laughs> like, I, I can't imagine late-night shows being that popular in non-English-speaking countries, you know? Yeah,
0: they're yeah all it's like, I don't know
1: any brilliant.
2: news anchors in any other country, let alone, like, <laughs> like <Yeah>. comedian equivalents.
1: <laughs> Truly, exactly. Um, so I wonder if they're just like, look at this silly man having a good time. <laughs> and then they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yes, yeah, so we do address Russell, and then afterwards we... Usually write a few more jokes, but not really. I will say the workload slows down around 3 p.m. And so from three to six is when we all can be working, but we're mostly like hanging out unless we're on the show that night. Um,
2: But then I guess after that is the actual taping of the show, right? So your days are pretty long in the end.
1: No, okay, so this is a secret, which is our show. None of the writers stay for the (laughs) tape. And it's like- Good uh, for you. (laughs) Yeah, we all were like, we see what the final script is, and everyone's like, oh, here's the stuff I got on or didn't get on, and everyone's out the door.
2: And speaking of like sticking around to be on the show, you have a recurring bit on the show as well called What Does Karen Know? Um, Mm. I'm curious about the origins of that, um, and if you you can also quickly explain that for our listeners.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a segment that we did for a while. It was um, basically Seth would show me something that was very popular- before I was born, and and then I will show him something very popular when after I was born (laughs) that's, like, relevant to people like our age, Karen, um, that he might not know about, and then we'll sort of (laughs) guess what it is. And, yeah, so that we came up with that. I didn't come up with that. Another writer named Matt Goldich did, Mm -hmm. and it happened very organically because when I started in the room, I think I was 23, and the next youngest writer was, like, Twenty eight. Mm-hmm. I think because of that, I would mention things and genuinely assume that they were references everybody would get, and people would not know what I was talking about. And the main one I remember is Neopets. That um, <gasps> nobody, nobody got it. Nobody got it. What? I, I really felt like is everyone making fun of me? Like. <laughs> I didn't understand how that was possible. The two big things were You're like Mandela was,
2: affecting you.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. It was Neopets and then it was the chicken pox vaccine where I was like, I got a chicken pox vaccine and everyone was like, That doesn't exist. What? You have to
2: get the chicken pox.
1: And I was like, no, I've never had it, because I had the vaccine. And then someone who is a mom um, was like, no, no, no. I have a young son, and he, is, he got the chickenpox okay, vaccine. Yeah. Karen is just a child. <laughs> um, and so that, I think because of those two things, Matt Goldich uh, came up with this idea where he was like, what if we show yeah. random things? OK, do you know what these little guys are? Uh, are they like um, Pikachus? No. <laughs> kind of. Okay. Well, they uh, uh, they are, um... Uh, are they like like Baby Lion King, like the Mucket Babies? But is that like like Baby Simba or something? So these are actually, honestly, very good guesses in that they are animated. Okay, so this is something called Neopets. Neopets? Does that ring a bell? <laughs> See? Okay. It was very fun, and so I was Neopets shocked like that it worked game. on air because I thought it was only fun for us in the room. Um, mm-hmm. But what do I know?
2: Yeah. As someone who's watched (laughs) the bit, it is very good. Um, Oh, thank you. That's so nice.
0: (laughs) We'll be back with more of Karen Han's conversation with Karen Chi. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Listeners, we want to hear from you, whether it's to ask for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your creative triumphs, drop us a line at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Karen's conversation with Karen Chi. You've written for several
2: different, I guess, comedic mediums now. Like you've written for a late night, you've written your own stand-up material, you've written for the New Yorker, like literally written material. Um I'm I'm curious, like how do you do you have to change like your mindset when you're working on different kinds of things?
1: I think I don't change my mindset, but then I change the delivery of it, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And so, because I think I still have the same sense of humor across all of those things, but mm-hmm. I would almost just, like, package it differently. Um, it's kind of like if I were trying to explain a situation to my mom versus my friend, I would explain it differently yeah. to them. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and so, yeah, there are often things where I'm like, oh, I think this is really funny. My friend, Allie Ford on Late Night, she and I wrote a thing that was about Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop, because I think the logo <laughs> for Goop came out, and it was very clearly a vagina. And we were like... This is hilarious. This is a, we wrote a thing for it, um, and Seth tried it out, and it was just like awkward and weird. And we were like, "Oh
2: no! Like
1: we've made you look like a creep." And so um, that did not make it past rehearsal. Uh-huh. So that's sort of a thing where I'm like, "Oh yeah, okay, I can." It's still the same sense of humor, but I have to make sure it works for him or me or the New Yorker or yeah. you know, whoever it is I'm doing jokes for.
2: My next question is kind of macro and possibly too broad, but what, in your opinion, makes a good joke?
1: I think there's kind of like an inexplicable thing of delight. That's Mm -hmm. like my personal favorite kind of joke is when something I hear and I go, oh, dang, (laughs) that makes me really happy, kind of. Um, That's the best. There's a comedian I really like called Bob Mortimer. um, (laughs) Oh, my God. He's so good. Oh, my God. He's the greatest. I think he's exactly, in my mind, the like, it's especially him on shows like What I Lie to You or Mortimer and House Gone yes. Fishing and stuff.
0: I used to have 17 sugars in a cup of oh, coffee or tea. 17? 17. 17, 17, Yeah. 17 That's,
1: in a mug. Yes. If I had 18, it's too sweet for me. <laughs> That's the exact humour I'm like, oh, I think I want to do that. I want to be that good. Um, where he's never punching down, he's never mean to anybody. Yeah. It's truly, it's sweet, but without being like saccharine or... Um, I really like that. And then I also, I guess I, you know, what's underlying that is actually probably surprise. So I'm going to go mm-hmm. actually with surprise because I really like that kind of delight, but I also really like very dry humor. Mm-hmm. because yeah, I was going to say
2: Bob Mortimer is very, very dry.
1: And I am not very dry. I think I'm too excited to be dry. And so anytime someone is very good at dry humor, I'm like, where did this come from? (laughs) (laughs) What a delight. (laughs) Yeah.
2: This is maybe putting a little bit of pressure on you, but that's, you've described like what you find good jokes, what you think are good jokes from other people, but how do you parse that for your own work? Like when you write a joke that you think is really good, do you feel that same sense of delight where it's like, oh yes, like that's it?
1: Yeah, I think there's also, there's a moment where when I'm writing something, it'll kind of surprise me when I think of it. Mm -hmm. And that's when I'm like, oh, this is worth putting in. Like, Mm -hmm. it surprises me in a good way. It works. And I, I think it's funny. And then other times, I'll be writing, just because you know how, like, before I had this as my job, it was just like a really exciting hobby. And so there would be times (laughs) when I was trying to write and it, wouldn't come out and I'd be like that's fine I don't need to work on this more um but because it's my job it's like you got to clock in and write jokes and clock out yeah so even on the days where I come in feeling bad I'm like man I have to be funny today and so I think there is kind of an autopilot that can still get me to things that sound like jokes yeah that aren't as funny or as good but are still like oh they set up punchline it you know it Mm -hmm. works and so when the mechanism feels too clear even to me as the writer I'm like I don't want to do this and then Mm -hmm. when it comes to me as a surprise because I've been thinking about it for so much that's usually the best kind of best kind of thing yeah Mm
2: -hmm. so you mentioned like kind of being able to crank out the jokes for a monologue even if you don't feel like you're in tip-top shape for joke writing that day Um, I'm curious like how much work did it take to get up to that point like how at what point do you sort of figure out okay this is how this joke this kind of joke is structured I just need to hit these beats and that makes it like a complete package that's
1: Something that I think took me a long time and it was mostly just through the sheer number of jokes I had to write um, right. for late night that I got kind of used to the grooves of a joke. And mm-hmm. so if somebody has a setup, I can usually sort of like look at it for a little while and be like, okay, well, in the punchline, if I change this sort of part of that concept, it could be funny. It could be a surprise to whoever's listening. I could, there's kind of two ways I feel like you can sort of attack a, a setup. Um Mm -hmm. Where one is you can make fun of something that is already within the setup. um, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of more of an internal version of a punchline. And then there's something where you can take that idea and bring it to a separate place that is a surprise location. (laughs) That sounds (laughs) like I'm kidnapping the setup. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and that's kind of like an external way to attack it. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, on days where I sort of am on autopilot, I... I kind of think about it that way where I'm sort of more like, okay, let's look at this as though I'm building like a model train or something. Like, yeah. what does this need? Let me just put in those parts. Um, and then hopefully, you know, somebody else will read it and be like, oh, this is good. Or like, oh, I can edit this <laughs> so that it can become good.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> In those instances that you are talking about where instead of kind of staying within its internal logic, a joke goes to a second place, like, how can you tell, like, if something is or isn't too extreme? Like, how can you make sure that it's going to work when it jumps over to that second or third location?
1: Usually, I kind of just go with my gut check on it, I think. And so... There are times where I'm like, this joke makes perfect sense to me. Um, (laughs) And whoever I show it to will be like, I don't understand how you got there. (laughs) And yeah, it's kind of tricky because I, when, to get to that sort of surprising part, often it's mostly that you keep brainstorming punchlines. And it's not the first couple because those are the very obvious step one, step two. Mm -hmm. And then the more you think about it, it'll go to like an A to a B to a C location. And so... um, yeah, but then sometimes you go too far and that's when I sort of send the joke to another writer in the room being like, "Does this make sense?" or like, yeah. sometimes I'll send something being like, "Is this appropriate for our show?" Mm-hmm. and then they'll be like, "Yes, it's appropriate." Like because I think I have a very I think my max of humor is like PG-13 and sometimes I'll say a PG-13 <laughs> joke and then I'll be like, "Oh no, this is rated R." And they'll be like, "No, Karen,
2: <laughs> we're all adults. You can say whatever you want." <laughs> You mentioned that you've basically monetized your hobby, which I think is a a problem that a lot of people around our age have. Yeah, um, yeah. Can you kind of like do you or do you want to kind of turn the like comedy part of your brain off like when you're not working on the show or like how do you what do you now do in order to kind of fill that part of yourself that w- was previously a hobby? Does that make sense?
1: This is a really good question because I really struggled with that. And so in the beginning, before the pandemic started, it took me a while to figure out what to do, which was just to have other hobbies. Um, because I before I was like, I like to do stand up and I like to do improv and I like to write. And those felt like three different things. And then pretty quickly, I was like, oh, this is all comedy and this is all for my career. And that felt really debilitating somehow um yeah and creatively I felt so much pressure in a way where I was like I was I just want to be able to do this and have fun um and I do genuinely enjoy my job but you know job it's still a job and so when I started at late night I afterwards I started like French classes and oh, I wow. started boxing yeah and I really liked that and then the pandemic started and it felt like this work-life balance that I'd kind of cobbled together really just everything disappeared and so um this past year I've been having so much fun I've just been like anytime there's something new I'm like I'm just gonna try it and even if it I'm only lasts for a it. month yeah. I'm gonna who cares is um I started fishing I really like fishing oh my gosh I that's started, so cool it's really nice yeah I bought like um I've been living in Seoul for the past couple of years and so yeah. I just bought like a rod and a bunch of bait and stuff like that and then I went out to the river and I fished oh my gosh there. <laughs> yeah it was There's a bunch of, like, people who sit by the river. This is Hengang and, like, the Han River. And um, it was, yeah, those people are very good. And I really had, like, the beginner's, (laughs) beginner's equipment. I didn't catch anything, but I had
2: a great time. (laughs) And you mentioned that you've been in Seoul for the last couple of years. And that's Mm. actually one of the big things I wanted to ask you about. How has it been to work remotely, especially with such a big time difference?
1: Yeah, I initially came here because my grandma got very sick and this was in the summer of 2020 which was like pre-vaccine in the middle of the first wave when things were really crazy and so flying to Korea already felt really scary yeah and yeah so I flew to Korea I told my bosses just being like hey this is happening in my family I would like to go we're all working remotely so you know yeah yeah And they were really nice, and they were like, "Oh yeah, definitely go. You can focus on family time, and you don't have to work." And so I did that, and then my grandma was sick for a very long time, and she's actually much better now, which is that's great. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. But I think for a while the time difference lined up nicely, where my grandma needed somebody to be there at nighttime to make sure she was sleeping okay, and Mm. so my mom and aunt. I'd be like, you guys should sleep at night because I have to be up anyway. So I'll just yeah. write jokes next to her bed, and then I didn't realize the like insane, like mindfuck that that would be. Where yeah, I'm like, my grandma is extremely ill, so I'm here to make sure she's staying alive, and then I'm writing jokes about like fucking Trump. Like, on my <laughs> computer. Um, so that was really wild. Uh, yeah.
2: I'm glad it's worked out. I hope you do get to go back to a normal schedule at uh, some point. Yeah,
1: thank you. Thank you. Me too. (laughs)
2: Um, And I feel like you've sort of answered this question when we were talking about, like, finding hobbies outside of our work. Um, But you mentioned in your bio that you like juggling multiple jobs at once, which I think Mm. is a fairly rare thing to be able to say. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Um, yes. I'm curious why you like that and how you manage to keep multiple balls in the air at the same time.
1: Basically, I... Like I mentioned before kind of I get bored by doing the same thing right. rep- like over and over again and so I it's very fun to do things that flex a different part of my brain and yeah it also I tend to procrastinate um, <laughs> which is very unique to me specifically <laughs> <And> so <laughs> if I have a lot of things going on I sometimes I'll be like oh I can procrastinate on this by doing a different job yeah um, and then I'm a classic so much- trap. Yeah, and then when I do the other job, uh, and it comes to the point where I'm like, oh, I need to finish this, I'll procrastinate on that by going back to this. And then I'm (laughs) actually staying pretty productive, but Mm -hmm. mentally, my brain has no idea, you know? Like, I know, (laughs) but my brain doesn't know. So, yeah, it's kind of like that, but I I also just like thinking of a lot of different things at once. And um, it's really fun to have – you know that thing about where – it was, I think I first heard it from like John Cleese, but now I'm going to attribute it to Jenny O'Dell, where you sort of like let a thought just sort of die in your brain for a little bit. And mm-hmm. the next time you think about it, like there's new stuff that has occurred yeah. in your brain. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. Um, so I try and have a bunch of things going.
2: Thank you so much for coming on. It has been such a delight and so eye-opening to talk to you.
1: Yay! Oh my gosh, it was so nice to talk to you. <laughs>
0: Karen, that was fascinating. Karen, she has amazing energy and she <laughs> sounds like someone who'd be a lot of fun to hang out with, which, oddly enough, isn't something I always think about comedy writers, even though I love to laugh like they seem kind of <laughs> heavy people. Um, but on a, a very basic level, I feel like I learned a lot about the nuts and bolts of writing jokes for a late night TV show, which It's funny because I feel like there are at least five new movies or TV shows every year that are set in that particular workplace. I guess the thing is that they're fiction and where she works is real. (laughs) But the idea of a whole bunch of people each writing like 80 jokes a day every weekday for however many weeks of the year, that's mind-blowing. But also, I guess, a really good way to build up writing muscles Have you ever been in a position where you just have to produce at a pace that feels slightly bonkers, but when you got to the other side, you felt like you benefited from that level of expectation?
2: I would say that I haven't, but I don't know if that's because I've been conditioned to think that the amount of work that I was doing when I was writing a lot as a journalist was not that much. Like, (laughs) arguably, most media jobs right now actually do demand that writers produce at a pretty high level. Like, I remember at a couple jobs, the expectation was I would do, like, 1,000-word feature a day, which I did. But, like, looking back from it, I don't know if I necessarily benefited from that. Like, working on my book now, I don't feel... Like, oh, like, this isn't, it's suddenly easy to write a thousand words because, like, topics differ, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's like, Arguably, the good thing is you get more bylines to prove that you've published more work. But at the same time, I feel like having to work at such a high volume can sometimes mean that you aren't thinking about what you're doing as much like you're we will inevitably get assigned things that you only care about, like halfway or it's like it's just because I've watched this or I'm familiar with this world that I've been assigned this topic and Sometimes it can get kind of annoying. Like, I remember a couple of workplaces, like, we often had other more famous writers named as examples that we should be following, like, in their journalistic footsteps. But I remember after every one of those meetings, us more junior writers would go back and be like, do our editors understand that those people can publish this really good, polished writing? Because the load that they have to bear isn't, you have to fill our site with more articles. Like I know a lot of the people that I really admire, like sometimes their workload is like one piece of mind, like one profile where you get to go meet the person, go actually spend time with them and learn about them, do research, actually spend time making the writing good. But if you're doing this every day, then there's no way that anything is going to live up to that level. And We think of it as a luxury, I think, like, because Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, that's so fancy. They get to travel, they get to spend a lot of time on a piece, but I don't think we should think about it that way. I have gone very far, of course, but you get what I mean.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. And I think because it does tend to be a step up the career ladder, Mm -hmm. it feels like, you know, yeah, something to move toward, but maybe that should just be the norm. And I know that there are a few writers who thrive on that I must produce, I must produce. I remember the iconic newspaper columnist, Liz Smith, who was writing, I think, every day well into her 80s. A, A colleague at the time got to have lunch with her and she told him that, he should fight to be allowed to write every day. Like, Ugh. that was something that would be really great for him. And and she wasn't trying to, like, give him more work. She really yeah. thought that was what everybody enjoyed and what everybody wanted. Yeah, um, it's just not everyone will thrive in that yeah, kind of environment. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Most and people I think, won't, I would argue. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not sustainable, but if you are one of those few people, then good more luck. More power to you. to you, really. Yes, exactly. All right, let's get back to Karen. So... Another part of her breakdown of the late night writing process that really stuck with me was the idea of, so they write the jokes, they give them to Seth, and then he reads them super quickly in a monotone, (laughs) just to see what's intrinsically funny and isn't relying on it. Like, that's crazy, but it makes total sense. You... You shouldn't rely on like selling a joke and putting it over with intonation and their their kind of great comedic timing. Mm -hmm. I've never been a late night watcher. It wasn't something I grew up with and I I didn't really add it when I moved here. But when I think of the very few late night bits that are engraved in my mind, they are really reliant on delivery. And, you know, maybe that's because the, the host really had to fight to put it over. And that brought out like a sympathetic response in me. Uh so anyway, are you, I'm curious, are you a, a watcher of late night shows? Like Karen,
2: she, I mostly watch late night shows through clips on YouTube. So mm. not really, I would say. Um, I would also say that I'm kind of a hard audience member where I, I won't laugh at something if I think it's not funny. Like my, my current boyfriend who I've been with for three years, um, likes to tell me that for the first three or four months of our dating, he didn't think that I liked him very much cause I wouldn't laugh at all <laughs> those jokes. Oh, my God. And and also, like, in college, one of my friends was in... I was in an acapella group, and so was one of my best friends. She was in a different one, and after a while, she was like, can you stop sitting in the front row of our concerts because your expression gives away that you don't like what's going on. Oh, my
0: God. Wow. (laughs) I mean, is that a poker face, or is it the opposite of a poker face? Arguably the opposite. Yeah, Yeah. wow. (laughs) Um, Karen's story about the clashing frames of reference in the writer's room. Mm -hmm. That is to say, people older than her, which was everyone not knowing like what neopets are. It's like, that's one of the great testimonials to why workplace diversity of all Mm -hmm. kinds matters. Like, yeah, yeah, the oldsters who watch late night live on an actual TV set, they might not know what a neopet is, but long running TV shows like that really need to expand their audience. And you can't do that if you're doing jokes for people from my generation you know about like Edward G Robinson and swing dancing every night <laughs> swing dancing is coming back though oh god
2: i <laughs> like you're like no keep it no. keep it
0: back in the past keep it yes
2: I totally agree, though, and it's really true of all fields, and you can kind of feel it in the way that, like, coverage in general has kind of progressed. Like, Mm -hmm. even Parasite's best picture win kind of illustrated that point, where in, like, in the press tour Bong Joon-ho, in a different award speech, he was like, if you guys just overcome subtitles, then, like, so much more cinema will open up to you, which is true, where we tend to overlook so much stuff just because it's considered foreign or otherwise not in our bracket for one reason or another. And there's also just a pervasive tendency to dismiss media that's meant for younger audiences or for women just because it doesn't necessarily jive with what our idea of quote-unquote great art is. Like, because it's not Citizen Kane doesn't mean that it can't be great art. Luckily, though, I feel like it is sort of turning around. Like, people are starting to argue kind of more on a broader level for the legitimacy of categories that weren't considered quote unquote, like great before, like even just the more, um, more pervasive coverage of video games and media, I think Mm -hmm. is something like that, where it's like, we've ignored this field for such a long time, but there's no good reason why we did that.
0: No. Yeah. I was also really struck by the picture that I had in my head of Karen writing jokes for late night while living in Seoul, South Korea. And maybe it's just all of those TV shows and movies that I've watched, but the whole late night world feels very specifically linked with either Midtown Manhattan or Burbank and a few miles around there. And Karen's experience proves that, you know, sure, all that romantic stuff about everyone being in a room, throwing out jokes and a few (laughs) zip codes is the way to do it. Maybe it isn't. And for me, that, was one of the most effective dismantlings of the whole office culture thing that I've come across.
2: Yeah, and I think it's just become more and more true, especially now because we've been forced to figure out how to do things remotely and while we're separate from each other and while we can't be all in the same room, you don't actually have to be in the same space in order to work. Like, even, like, my first foray into, like, TV development was just – through Zoom while I was still in New York and everyone else was Zooming from LA because we could do that now. So I feel like it's a good progressive thing overall that we are learning to work differently, even if I wish the reason why that happened were different. (laughs)
0: You were Zooming from Brooklyn with people in LA, but mm-hmm. if people can be in cheaper parts of the country, yeah. that will open things up to so many more people. It's so expensive to live in New York. and Yeah, it's an and, accessibility thing, yeah. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Tell the truth, though. Do you miss The Office?
2: <laughs> well, I only went to the Slate offices once, and that oh, was oh to God. like drop off my ID, I believe. Oh my God. <laughs> I never got to go because I started working at Slate during the pandemic, oh. and then wow. I quit my position as a staff writer also during the pandemic, so I just never went in. Wow. That's why I do miss office culture a little bit, although I yeah. wish it were when it comes back it remains optional. Again for yeah. the same reasons that we're talking about where it's like people in other parts of the country or other parts of the world can work with us. And also sometimes you just want to stay home. And also the commute time can be so long. Yes. There's yes. so many reasons why I think it should be optional. But I do miss seeing people, I guess, yeah, and yeah. having a better avenue with which to get to know my coworkers. Yeah. Like In a Slack environment, I really only talked to my editor and Mm -hmm. a couple of people who are in the culture vertical, but I didn't really get to know anybody else, which I feel like I would have at least a little bit more if we had been in an office setting. I also miss when the food verticals would get a lot of junk food that they didn't want and leave it out
0: and we could all come eat it. I
2: really miss that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody left Slate recently who was famous for as soon as there was some note in Slack about there's food in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Like it would run. That would have been at, me. Yeah. And, you know, that's a great thing to be known for. <laughs> and who? I, I would never have known that about you if you hadn't just told me. So yeah, miss that. It's true. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like How To Do It and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working Thank you so much to our guest,
2: Karen Chi, and to our fabulous producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Isaac Butler's conversation with Alicia Harris and Whitney White, the writer and director, respectively, of the play On Sugarland. Until then, get back to work! <laughs>